The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is our occasional contributor and admired writer Stuart Jeffries, who, when not reviewing or writing journalism, seems to have made a kind of career in charting the intellectual background to the culture wars. His last book was Grand Hotel Abyss, which was the life of the academics known as the Frankfurt School. And his new one is called Everything, All the Time, Everywhere, How We Became Postmodern. Stuart, welcome. Hello. This idea of postmodernism, which, you know, when I were a lad, was a very sort of, very arcane concept, really, in academia and in theory. And it seems now to have become an absolutely central issue in the culture war. You know, your enemies are postmodern. Postmodernism is what's responsible for the you know, imminent collapse of society. What actually is postmodernism? How do you define it? It's a nightmare to define because it's a linguistic black hole. It's both something that characterises architecture in the sense that uh, there was modernism, which was tower blocks, essentially. You know, you think of Le Corbusier and all those kind of things and rectilinear, living like a machine. And then the rebellion against that kind of modernism. Which you, which you can see all over the Docklands, you know, go to London Docklands and you see these endlessly quoting, you know, past historical styles, pastiching them. And that kind of giddy, fun appropriation of old cultures and, and, and all that kind of stuff is postmodernism in a sense. But there are other rival and very different definitions of postmodernism. They're multiple, confusingly, in a properly postmodern way, you know, because as you rightly say, you know, postmodernism originated in academia largely in Paris, largely with very disappointed French theorists from 68 who, you know, announcing the revolution that they wanted. So they go ahead and theorise, rather like the Frankfurt School did back in after World War One. why hasn't there been a revolution? And, and, and what they come up with is a theory akin to the Frankfurt School who said that, well, it's because we're all corrupted by materialism, we're all corrupted by, you know, Hollywood and uh, pop music from fulfilling our manifest destiny and rising up and um, causing, you know, socialist revolution. That was the Frankfurt School. Postmodern theorists, disappointed after 1968, think, well, you know, there's got to be something else going on and what can it be that can, can kick-start revolution again? So what you have is what is largely called an assault on truth. So the shibboleths of the usual academy, you know, truth, scientific method, reality, objectivity, all get detonated by these really irresponsible, I think, French theorists, like Baudrillard, particularly Deleuze. They all say there is no such thing as truth. There are power struggles. There is no such thing as reality. It's all interpretation. And one, one thing I was thinking about when I was writing the book is, you know, is postmodernism dead? And if it is, fine. If it isn't, how could it have survived? And I, my argument, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to be talked out of it, but my argument is that postmodernism survives into the post-truth era we live in. Its tentacles carry on reaching you know, right through to us. Even though some forms of postmodernism, like the architecture I mentioned before, or 
you know, self-referential postmodern novels, they're clearly dead in the water. I don't think postmodernism as a kind of spirit is anything but alive and thriving. And, and that spirit you'd identify with, I mean, you talk talking in literature, self-referentiality, the idea, that, which I suppose ties into this, this idea of truth being a bit subjective. Yeah. You know, in literature and in architecture, you think of a quotation of what sometimes gets called kind of metaness, the idea that you recognise that what you're doing is artificial. So you write a novel about someone writing a novel where it turns out that the character is a character in a novel that the, somebody else is writing or whatever it is. You know, that yeah. self-reflexivity in art is characteristic of postmodernism. But is there a sort of something that could come after that? I mean, if... Sorry, this is always a problem with trying to talk about theory. Yeah, yeah. The characteristic postmodern gestures, if I understand it rightly, is fundamentally to do with recognising that or asserting that everything we do is artificial. Yeah. And that that can be extended from simply art into science, into probably not maths, but... Yeah, certainly science, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and social science in particular, yeah. But we often think of postmodernism as being fun as well. <laughs> now, I know there's a sort of, you know, the enemies of postmodernism would say, you know, there's nothing fun about undermining truth and Western civilization, and so on. Yeah. But jokes and silliness and frivolity and the refusal to take anything seriously seems to be something that's part of the what we'd call postmodernism as a nexus of things. Is that right? I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, th I think that the idea is, for a lot of postmodern artists, it's a liberation from the earnestness of modernism, which was opposed to, you know, ornament and was opposed to, yeah, opposed to fun in a way. This is, this is an embrace of fun, I think. And you see, you know, you're talking about the, the artificiality of postmodernism and that how artists draw attention to that artificiality. And that, that I think the prime example for me, and I write about it in the book, is I Love Dick by Chris Krauss. And she, it's, it's an epistolary novel in which a character called Chris Krauss has an affair with an academic, a postmodern theorist called Dick, who actually turns out to be based on the real Dick Hebdige. And she's married at the time to uh, Sylvain Lotringer, a, a great French theorist. And it's really hard to tell whether this is for real or fantasy or what. And, and typically, Chris Krauss would go and publicise this book about this affair that she had or didn't have, go on to radio shows and TV shows and say, this all happened and there's no blurring of fiction reality. Or is there? And, and so she's enjoying teasing us with the idea that the very artificiality may actually be confused with reality and actually is reality. Really odd. And those, sort of, I mean, that's, that's a sort of high theoretical gesture played out in fiction. But you can see it again and again with some of the postmodern artists that I write about in the book, you know, from David Bowie to Madonna, all of whom love playing different roles. And, you know, particularly Bowie, you don't really know what you're getting a lot of the time, whether you're ever, there is a real Bowie. There's a book about Bowie by a philosopher, and I can't remember his name, but it argues that with Bowie, that the artifice is all the way down. And that's the dirty secret of art that their you know, postmodernism reveals. It's there's no sort of real person below all this. And that made me go away and listen to Bowie a lot and think, well, actually, that's right. Where where is the real Bowie in all this? Where's the essential human being behind this? He isn't there at all. And uh, this love of artifice and fun, you know. That's one of the great pleasures for the people perpetrating postmodernism in art. And it's a pleasure that I think has curdled for those on the receiving end of it, you know. Because I think there is a post-postmodernism, you were talking about that earlier, I think, I think there is something, there's like a, a rebellion against it, a kind of 
a new sincerity and a new you know anti frivolity which you can see rising up in a you know in, in the wake of it. Well, um, David Foster. I mean, in fiction, there was David yeah. Foster's great you know revolt. He said, "I'm I'm fed up with the previous generations." I mean, I was, I was talking about the kind of Bretty Snellis, Joe McInerney generation of sort of effectlessness. You know that cool irony, and he said, didn't he? Like enough with irony. My generation's sick of irony. Yeah. And yet one sort of thinks of Wallace in lots of respects as a postmodern novelist. I mean, absolutely. Not not least in the sort of length and discursiveness and the embrace of and, and the treating of popular culture seriously. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Infinite Jest is perhaps, you know, the greatest postmodern novel in that sense, you know. It, it's a rambling mess. But so is that it's an attempt also... to do postmodernism without irony? Yeah, yeah. But I think he also he's doing a lot of ironic stuff in it. I mean, the, even those, you know, those crazy Quebecois... Assassin du futur There you go. <laughs> that, he's having a lot of fun constructing a bunch of crazed Canadian terrorists who are trying to destroy America with a videotape which, once watched, will kill you because it's so entertaining and it's such a great joke. I mean, that's you know hilarious premise for a novel. It's brilliant, you know. But it also conceals his very serious point about what he thinks, and I think this is what has happened since his death, what happens to us if entertainment takes over our lives in the way that, you know, it, it has. You know, essentially the interlace phenomenon that he describes in in uh, the book is really kind of a you know a forecasting of netflix and how it will, will become a, you know binge on it and uh, it'll, it'll take over our lives so in a way that gave me the sense that some of these postmodern impulses particularly the you know the the, the omnipresence of entertainment and the omnipresence of, of distraction carry on to today but in more elegant ways than perhaps even he predicted because he was talking about a VA, you know, vhs culture so clearly that's that's passe now. I mean, these, these gestures behind postmodernism about abolishing or, you know, internally, I want to say problematizing or deconstructing, whatever, just knocking yeah. to bits ideas of <laughs> yeah. stable meaning and hierarchies of value. Yeah. I think, like, you know, genres of high culture and low culture or, you know, structures of authority. That seems to be a lot of what postmodernism is all about. Does that connect with the idea of Marxism? Because I mean, in the minds of particularly some people like Jordan Peterson, who are very influential, they say, you know, the enemy today is Marxist postmodernists. And it strikes me from many, but there is a sort of distinction to be drawn there that, that Marxists are doing one thing. Yeah. Maybe postmodernists are doing another. I'm trying to get a sense of the intellectual genealogy here. I mean, they I may both be enemies of Western civilization, but um, in <laughs> different right. ways. <laughs> they both are. That's right. But I think you're right. There's a split in this sort of Marxist, what's sort of, you know, laughingly called the, the Marxist critique of uh, late capitalism, which is that on the one side you've got these old timers in unions and you know in boring sort of Trotskyist meetings and all that kind of stuff. They're still carrying on the fight in their inept way. And then you have these disappointed soixante retards, you know, who who actually now realise that this is not the way to go. You know, there, there, there is no revolution. And so they liberate, and this is what the appalling French theorists, Foucault, Deleuze and Baudrillard, appalling and also brilliant, do, is to liberate desire. Desire which has always been regarded as this problem, you know, this is from Freud and, and people like that, that it's, it's, it's a, a lack which motivates us in, in, in kind of various perverse ways. 
desire they they imagine is like a political force. It can be the political force that the, you know the Marxist revolution now lacks because you know the, the proletariat's been bought off. Forget them; they're useless to to the revolution. Desire is a political force. It can be liberated, and you know we can become these desiring machines who. That's what postmodern is, but it, it, in a sense, because it's blowing up the norms of society, you know, fighting in the face of of the authority and all that kind of stuff. And it's the, the, the libidinous sexual nature of it, which which it is kind of is very interesting, liberating desire in a way that yeah. <laughs> not cool. No, so not cool. Because I mean, he, you know, he he was, uh, you know, he's dead, but he he did rape and otherwise, you know, sexually predate on young. Algerian boys, you know, and Moroccan boys. And he, a lot of his books are about that liberation of desire and it is a, you know, furtively political force. So what I suppose what I'm saying about, you know, this purportedly sort of Marxist, cultural Marxist critique of capitalism is actually at the same time, it fits very well with some of the forces that, that might be called capitalists. So, you know, postmodernism is actually in bed with a lot of the forces that the leftists would seem to critique. You know, they're sort of saying, desire's great, you know, um, buying things is great, consumerism is, well, maybe we should yield to that, you know. This is what Baudrillard calls a fatal strategy. You know, the idea is we can't overthrow capitalism by normal means. We do it by, you know, embracing different ways. We, we become more capitalist than the capitalists. There is a charge which goes through your book that that essentially leads them into a sort of quietism, that what they're, they're saying is, you know, Marxists for generations have been saying, right, we want to overthrow the world, straight world, by changing its material shape. Yeah. And postmodernists have been saying, we can't do that, so we're just going to change symbols, ideas, signs, you know, visuals, feelings. Is that a fair description of the split? I think it is. I mean, I, I draw this parallel in the book between coming off the gold standard, you know, Nixon coming off the gold standard in uh, 1972, and it seems a big bang for you for postmodernism. I think it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think postmodernism is, is, is around in sort of embryo in the sixties. You know, when you read sort of Sontag's Notes on Camp, that, you know that that clearly is that that sort of you know querying of the heteronormative discourse, etc. It's, it's, it's kind of there and thereabouts. But in seventy two, when we come off the gold standard, that is like what's happening to meaning and and truth, and they're being being destroyed as well. So gold no longer is this backer of the you know U.S. dollar. You can't, as a foreign currency holder, go to America anymore and, and get the gold that you used to be promised, which held up the whole Bretton Woods system since the war. So the 30 years since the war are all about this kind of social democratic order backed by gold and backed by you know exchange rates which don't float too much and everything's quite stable. And then suddenly it's this Wild West, you know, that come off the gold standard, these French theorists start to have their influence, particularly in American universities, they, and particularly in American universities' literature departments as opposed to philosophy departments. And, and they're, they're detonating truth, they're detonating, you know, they're, they're blowing up everything that's, well, you know, Western society holds dear from within, you know, and that's very menacing. And that's kind of the cultural Marxist postmodern term that worries, you know, Jordan Peterson and people like that, I think. And is it that that sort of removal of value from the gold standard, is that analogous to, is it related to this idea that, you know, if you like, the signifier and signified, and so Syrian terms are being split, yeah. that, that language is untethered from its reference in the in the outside world. I mean, you, you can go too far with it. I mean, I think David Harvey, this uh, sort of Marxist geographer, writes about how 
there is um, a synchronicity between the birth of neoliberalism, you know, which he traces to Nixon, you know, the Nixon shock and coming off the gold standard, and subsequently, you know, the realization of Friedrich Hayek's sort of neoliberalist ideas in, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Reagan, and one might say Deng Xiaoping. You know, you, you get this neoliberal force rising throughout the 70s and carrying on through the 80s and 90s, coterminous with, you know, a massive boom in artistic production. Artists becoming really rich, you know, people like Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, all these guys become, you know, rich in ways that they hadn't imagined they would be through their arts. So there's a sense in which artistic production goes nuts and it goes nuts partly because value the value of value other things is going is going wonky you know oil prices are going nuts and property market and bonds and all traditional sources of value are collapsing so people invest in art so there's a there's a push to make art but then what kind of art and architecture do you make you know and the idea is that the postmodern is waiting in embryo to be co-opted as it were by forces of neoliberalism to make capitalism stronger. I mean, maybe it did, you know, maybe maybe that's what happened. Certainly, that's the narrative I'd like to trace, even if it's not entirely always true. I mean, would postmodernists, I don't know how many people would self-describe themselves as postmodernists, but would those we would identify as postmodernists see what they're doing as a form of rebellion, even if one in the symbolic realm, or as something that's yeah. been, you know, dismayingly co-opted? by what it's supposedly trying to rebel against, which I guess is, you know, money and power and, you know, the straight world and Western sea and tradition, or would it be more sort of like it just doesn't care? I mean, is there any sort of moral core to postmodernism or, or those sets of ideas around that? Yeah, I think there was. I mean, there, there was an exhibition at the v in 2011 about postmodernism, and David Byrne of Talking Heads wrote the forward to the catalogue, and he, he, he said it was great because it was a liberation from modernism's rule book. So there is that sort of sense of liberation. But I think, you know, not many people are going to call themselves postmodernism postmodernist now. I'm not sure if many did it ever really. You know, you can imagine Jeff Koons might because he accepts everything, you know, he doesn't nay say anything at all. But it's a term of abuse really, isn't it? Certainly when I when I was I was working at, when I was working at the Guardian Arts Desk in the 90s and, you know, to call something POMO was inevitably just to diss it massively and say that, you know, this, this subject matter is beneath our contempt. That said, you know, we'd run yards of stuff to do with, with postmodern art and how dreadful it all was. I mean, that was one of the problems for me writing this book is I hate so much of this stuff, you know, I hate, I don't like that reading these vast baggy novels, you know, I love Foster Wallace, but I don't, you know, so many of these novels I really don't like reading. So much of this architecture just it looks, is so ugly. And I, I mean, I went to the Ashmolean the other year to see a Jeff Koons retrospective. It was just so nauseating. I hated it. So I re- re- <laughs> you know, <laughs> Why you put yourself through it? I don't know. It, it, feel, it feels like s- such unfinished business because it was so much part of my, my the first jobs I was doing so much part of my intellectual formation you know when when I started at the Guardian it was it was around the time of what was I, I think ironically called the modern review you know and Julie Birchall and Toby Young were in their pomp you know and they, they were you know I, although it's called the modern review it's really the postmodern review because it was all about blurring distinctions between high and low and I remember you know God, I remember Toby Young coming in one day and saying how he couldn't bear Terence Davis's films because they spent 20 minutes, you know, on a carpet, you know, with a camera shooting a carpet. Much better to watch Austin Powers. And that was the sort of ideological basis of a lot of the stuff that postmodernism 
was you know it was just about this old crap is we've got to get rid of it and let's get into the fun and you know let's write big sort of deconstructions of Baywatch rather than anything serious god it's an awful what an awful time <laughs> you're, you're a serious-minded sort of person i mean i i, I haven't come through the frankfurt school i mean when often the frankfurt school associated with postmodernists i think hang on postmodernists are all about fun and you know theodore adorno was like <laughs> the 20th century's mr no fun <laughs> Very strong suspicion of fun in all its, <laughs> all yeah. its aspects. I always wonder with the door, whether he's actually just that's just he's having fun proposing as Mr. Funless, really. Now, at least I hope he was, because otherwise, God, what a dismal life that must have been. Exactly, even in California, carrying his own little thundercloud around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, tell me some of the people who've been. I mean, I, th I thought you were very interesting in here on, for example, of the more obscure theorists. I mean, we hear you know a lot about Foucault. You know, even Liz Trust knows all about him, but. I mean, Lyotard seems to yeah. have predicted Google, which wasn't a bad move for an early postmodern theorist. I mean, Lyotard, you seem to have some time for in this. I mean, I know you don't like Deleuze and Guattari or Baudrillard very much. Yeah, I do, oddly enough. I mean, because I, I hadn't read for a long time this uh, his book on postmodernism, postmodernism, and it came out in 1979. So it seems quite an important thing to, to, to address. He's derided very massively in philosophical circles, even amongst French theorists, you know. And so to read this book, actually, it's quite measured. And after the pottiness of Baudrillard and after the pottiness of Deleuze and Guattari, you know, which can get a bit bit trying to read, this seemed quite lucid in, in, in its arguments about what postmodernism is. And he he was worrying about... I mean, it's a really odd book because he was commissioned to do it by uh, some Canadian university authority which to try and think about wither knowledge, what is knowledge? And that seemed a pertinent question at the end of the 70s because we've got, you know, you have this whole decade of people saying there is no truth, there is no, you know, objectivity, so how does it work? And it, a lot of the stuff he's addressing is how universities were formed as in France and Germany particularly to establish what they the, what they were trying to do were they trying to create civil servants you know was, were, were universities instrumental you know they were just sort of creating generations of clever people who could administer societies or was there something more noble and beautiful about you know university life which is just about study for study's sake and that that dream he's kind of conflicted between that i think broadly german dream that you know that there's something noble and beautiful about study and and the idea that um, knowledge is also now lost that ability. Well, it's, it's lost that role in our society. The pursuit of knowledge has become commercialised and weaponised. It's his idea, and this is a broadly Marxist idea that any research that is done, you know, where you've got to follow the money. The, why we're researching into weaponry, you know, what, you know, how did, how did a lot of inventions? You know, why was a massive explosion of inventions? around the mid-century it's because you know we, we were fighting wars and you know, that pr precipitated us to invent lots of fabulous destructive things so and he's got this really balmy idea that actually what we need to do now is embrace the indefinite rather than the determinate in terms of knowledge this is really weird weird stuff because he, he's, he's drawing on stuff like quantum theory which, you know, is, the idea is that the basic level that everything's probabilistic and indeterminate, to say that, my God, we should just, uh, we should embrace that way of approaching knowledge and not in a, in a sort of Brian Cox way of pursuing knowledge as this, there's something to be discovered out there. Rather, we're, you know, wearing our own sort of rose-tinted spectacles as we approach reality. We're imposing our vision of, re of what there is on the world. 
So that's all really odd. And then he comes up with another idea, which is that narr- there's this thing called narrative knowledge, which to me doesn't make any sense. But the idea is that when tribal societies told stories, they had truth embedded in them, and we should and we should we, that's a rival to our scientific conception of knowledge, which has dominated us since the you know the seventeenth century. What we should do now to liberate ourselves from the constraints of mercantilized knowledge is to embrace narrative knowledge power of the story the power of telling truth through stories this is all really abstruse stuff but it it, it, it i think underneath it there's a like a strange political message which is that we were entitled to distrust scientists because they've been corrupted we're entitled to distrust the notions of truth because that's been corrupted and we should embrace different kinds of truths weird stuff and i'm really doubtful about it but he writes quite well about it which which is for me was an unexpected pleasure you know i mean this idea that that there is no such thing as objective truth, or at least that things can't be comparatively true. I mean, were they, isn't that a, something of a caricature of the position? Because, I mean, you know, Foucault has always, you know, very much held up as this was the guy who said there was no such thing as truth. I mean, sometimes people say Derrida, but mostly it's Foucault in our current public discourse. I mean, was he not making the weaker case, fundamentally, you know, because we know that Foucault did historical research. You know, yeah. contain, you know, dates and facts, and I mean, there's arguments over how how good a researcher he was and how thorough a researcher he was. But yeah, you know, he did present historical evidence in discussing the history of sexuality, or whatever. But he was making the weaker claim that that the way we approach and shape truth, the truths we prioritize, you know, that everything, all of our discourses about truth are shaped by you know what he tends to call capital P power. I yeah. yeah, there's always a thumb on the scales rather than saying there's no scales there at all. I think that's right. I mean, he talks about epistemes, doesn't he? You know, the, the, the idea that uh, we shift between epistemes of knowledge and they have different sort of truth systems around them. And that seems to make sense. You know, if we live in a Copernican world, we live in a different world from a Ptolemaic world. You know, all that does make a kind of sense. And this, his idea is that there's power behind it. So I think his weaker case yeah. is more compelling, but it it is it, still... A, to, to, to scientific orthodoxy today, I mean, if you talk to Richard Dawkins, you know he would very much say, "There's this way. You know, this is the truth." Those guys, they were wrong. You know, the, the pre-Copernicans were wrong. We are now right, and, and that, and we know the truth, and we're finding, we're excavating the truth, as it were. You know, we're finding out what it, what is really there, and that's something that I think the postmodernists are doubting entirely. They're just saying you can't choose between these. Ep- you can't, you know, say one episteme is better than another. You can't say one person's or one society's truth system of truth values is better than. So there is a relativism, and that relativism is awful. I think, and that, that's what really undermines and really enrages a lot of scientists. And understandably, you know, from my point of view, I don't, you know, I'm not a scientist, but when I think of what what populism has done to politics, you know, you, you one does worry that the death of truth and the death of, you know, objectivity and the rampant unleashing of power does to to our discourse, you know. It's a bit boring to go on about it, but I mean, I do, I do write a bit about Trump and how he compellingly and brilliantly, you know, subverted, used some of these, unwittingly probably, used a lot of these things we've been talking about to his own political end. How much do you buy the idea that... that <laughs> dynasty of slightly obscure French theorists <laughs> that right. directly contributed to this post-truth environment because, you know, I mean, surely it's not a complete innovation brought about by postmodernism that 
you know, politicians no, no, right, lie yeah. if they can get away with it. I love the idea that in Mar-a-Lago, Trump is sitting there reading, you know, Andy Oedipus or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's not the only game in town as well. Yeah, French... Th- I mean, but, but there was... Trump got a memo halfway through his presidency in, in which, you know, he's from the National, National Security... from the NSA, and they're, and they're saying that uh, he... saying that cultural Marxism is the most, you know, subversive thought force in America. And it went on incredibly to cite Adorno and, and, and these long-dead, you know, Jewish Marxist intellectuals who'd been refugees in California for a while as the, the architects of this system which had blown up all the things that America should hold dear. dear that, you know, that, <laughs> there's this idea that Adorno actually... Uh, this is the craziest of ideas backed the Beatles and saw them as uh, a fabulous fifth column who could subvert American values from within, which is kind of... Hilarious, because Adorno... Not in character. Not in character, you know, like the idea he was the fifth Beatle, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. If only, if only the world was that interesting. But, in, you know, in, in truth, is cultural Marxism significant in, in that way? Probably not, but, you know, one, one can argue that there are lots of subversive cultural forces around in America and here which are fighting a, a revolution in a rather dangerous and risky way. But if, 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 if you like, sort of populism at the right of the sort of Trump, Trumpite sort is fighting against cultural Marxism or what it imagines to be cultural Marxism, is it doing so with the tools of postmodernism? I mean, are we seeing a war between two successive generations of, you know, well, you know continental theorists or... Nobody seems quite able to pinpoint whether, if you like, you know, postmodernism is what has enabled the rise in populism or it's the great enemy or phantom enemy of the rise of populism. I mean, it's both, isn't it? I mean, it's it's certainly... Was that the nature of the beast? Yeah, well, I think that's right. I think it is. It's, you know, my God, it's so so nice not to use these words, but, you know, it's polysemous and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Certainly, the idea of cultural Marxism, as put, as put forward by the Frankfurt School, was that it, that it was impotent, that it couldn't change anything, and and that's why the charge that it actually is secretly influencing and corrupting American society is borderline hilarious, I think. But at the same time, all these ideas percolating through through postmodern thought, you know, it, there is a thread you could trace if you fancied it from from Foucault through to Kellyanne Conway, you know, denying that there are such things as alternative truths. Now, if you want to trace that story, you can just about do it. So postmodernism yeah, is, is both responsible for a critique of populist society and is, in a way, its intellectual foundation, insofar as there are foundations, which, of course, there aren't. Sorry, this sounds well, terribly slippery. I beg your pardon. No, no, but it's a slippery topic. I mean, in the same way that, you know, there's a thing almost over Machiavelli, is he critiquing yeah, Starcraft yeah. or is he, you know, offering a manual? Is that, yeah. that one of the central problems with postmodernism is that, that, you know, you wouldn't think of people like, say, Judith Butler or even Foucault as being, or Baudrillard, as being on the right or seeing themselves as allies of, you know, what, what gets called by lefties as a boo word, neoliberalism. And yet, you know, the suggestion seems to be that actually they're the, the foremost exponents of this. Well, they are. I mean, they are. But also at the same time, maybe one of the the uh, Western hierarchies they've blown up as well is left and right. I mean, you know, is, is Judith Butler on the right or the left now? Who knows? I mean, what what does that mean? What does that distinction mean now? I mean, it seems particularly perilous when you look at, you know, the political landscape in this country. What does left and right mean? And what, what 
you know, so her her idea of you know gender fluidity can both become the standard bearer of you know left wing feminism. We'd have thought, and also it can be seen as a liberation theology, which the right might want to get behind in in far as they don't mind too much about you know lesbians and transsexuals and stuff that you know the Christian right in America is traditionally opposed. Is there also a sort of parallel schism in the right, if that makes sense? In that if postmodernism, which which is generally particularly on the right, seen as a bad thing, yeah, it's a great ally of of this particular sort of really, you know, hyper individualistic, you know, transnational globalistic dematerialized sort of capitalism. Yeah, seems to go hand in hand with postmodernism. You'd think there would be a sort of libertarian right that would love it, that would think postmodernism is intellectual Bitcoin. You know, is that there? Does that exist? Is there a sort of more traditional conservatism that hates it and a sort of libertarianist type of right wing thought that loves it? Well, there's certainly the, the, the former, you know, certainly true. I mean, if Roger Scruton was still alive, you know, he would be indicting postmodernism with all the vigour he could master, you know. To his dying day, actually. Yeah, yeah, you know, loaded. you know, he wrote this terrific sort of series of essays called Fools and Firebrand, something like that, in which he had to go to the Frankfurt School and had to go to the intellectual charlatanism of a lot of the, the people we've been talking about. And, you know, I, I can't dissent too much from him, what he says in that book. It just does strike me as being very, very plausible, what he argues. But he was never, he may have been a Thatcher supporter, I suppose, but I don't think he was ever part of the neoliberal project because he, he loathed this kind of turbocharged capitalism in a way which is different from, but as angry as, I think, you know, communists on the left who do despise neoliberalism. As for flag wavers for that, there aren't many, other. I mean, I, it's almost like, you know, nobody nobody will admit to being a card-carrying postmodernist. Nobody's going to admit to really now being ideologically committed to all the things that I indict in the book, you know, this everything everywhere. All, although, you know, we all benefit from it, or we all, we're all, we all live in it, you know, we all live in a system of, I don't know, Netflix binging, of Amazon Prime purchasing, and et cetera, et cetera. We are, and perhaps there are champions of it out there. They aren't very loud in their, you know, support for, for, for it, but perhaps they don't need to be because it's working pretty well, you know. You know, if you see capitalism, as some of the people I quote in the book, as, as an amoral virus which is thriving... You know, it's doing incredibly well. You know, and, and uh, good luck to it. It's, you know, and, and any critique is kind of, or any even flag waving for it is, is kind of beside the point. I, I suspect. Yeah, you do have a line in the book. I think it might be Frederick Jameson's, but I can't remember who you quote saying. Essentially, that you know, this is part of a historical movement, which said, uh, you know, we had the Renaissance, and then you have the Reformation. The Reformation was necessary to bring about the Enlightenment. And the suggestion seems to be that, you know, modernism is the Renaissance, postmodernism is the Reformation. Yeah. And something will come after. Is that plausible? It is, except that the Reformation was rather funless and the Renaissance was great fun. So it's like it's an inversion, isn't it? You know, the, the, you know modernism was funless, really, but That's Perry Anderson, I think, but he's... Or maybe it is Jameson, but anyway, I think the idea is... The idea of almost like a purging or a shriving after kind of going in a certain way uh, you know maybe history does work in that cyclical way we respond to the shortcomings of previous isms by you know going in a different way that's very hegelian of you i'm sorry about that i'm so sorry 
<laughs> it is, but you know, again, this the whole the whole thing, the Hegelian thing about the cunning of reason, and this, this is the which I'd never really understood as a phrase, but it just it seems to apply to a lot of the stuff that's going on with postmodernism. But if if you see postmodernism as being, you know, in bed with neoliberalism, liberalism is that there's a cunning of capitalism, which is to make us desire our own domination, you know, to be satisfied with all this, you know, materialistic guff. Um, and, yeah, well, yes, he's Roman, exactly. You know, it's really old, old. It's not exactly new stuff, but that, you know, this is this is what Hegel's saying, and, and really, this is what a lot of critics of postmodernism are saying: is that it's bread and circuses, really. A lot of it is bread and circuses, and that's hard not to doubt. You look at some of the stuff that I can't bear to, you know, because of calories and sea, you know, like Jeff Coons and. Or, you know, Newport Streets, the old, you know, Damien Hirst shows on at the moment. I can't bear to go there. I don't want to see his heart, you know. Isn't that where sort of money itself is the spectacle, though? Yeah, absolutely. Whatever aura you might see around the work of art is to do with the fact that you know that this diamond skull or this silly inflated rabbit is worth, you know, ticking up in value faster than your house in front of your eyes well, how interesting i think that's exactly right you know you, you're looking at it as 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 a commodity rather than a work of art and that's i mean for old timers like me that's kind of quite sad really but then again there's this great line from frederick jameson saying that in this time and i don't know if it's true but it's, it's like a great line anyway all beauty is meretricious and the idea is that if you're working at this you know this heavily commodified kind of in this business through which you can become a multi-millionaire artist and you're making beautiful things to be collected by collectors or to, as he would think, you know, to beguile the masses with dross or, you know, beguile the masses and, and distract them from their revolutionary task. That, that's a kind of awful thing to do. And it's sort of, I remember reading it thinking, oh, my God, you know, I should feel more guilty when I'm standing in, you know, the National Gallery or Louvre or whatever and just looking at something beautiful. I shouldn't really be... I shouldn't really be enjoying this, or I shouldn't be. I shouldn't appreciate something as beautiful because I'm a postmodernist. I'm living in a postmodern world where these feelings are no longer beautiful, you know, defensible attitudes towards art. I should be thinking all the time about, yeah, the money behind it, or uh, or what it's for, and who's collecting it, and how the art world is corrupting us, and all that kind of dismal stuff. You can see why I didn't want to write this book because it makes you think like that all the time when you're trying to do something lovely and innocent. <laughs> <laughs> the idea. That postmodernism, I mean, one is, is can we in any way fight back against it or escape from it? Because, you know, an obvious, whether you're on a traditional conservative right or, you know, a rather more old school left, materialism, you know, a sort of sense of groundedness in real lives, you know, real material conditions of life, you know, material objects and institutions and and so forth seems to be what you fight against this kind of wild you know ethereal nature of postmodernism but everything's getting more virtual i mean you know we're all going to disappear into the metaverse yes right. our lives in a, in a sort of virtual environment in which you know everything is commodified in a, in a completely sort of immaterial and symbolic way I mean, has the internet made made the sort of complete triumph of postmodernism inevitable? Is there a way to get back to some sort of old school materialism? I think only by being nauseated by perceiving the excesses of it. There's a book at the moment called Reality Plus by a, a Columbia professor of philosophy in which he argues that, yeah, that Stephen Hawking was wrong. You know, we don't need to blow off this planet we've wrecked and go somewhere else. What we need to do is to retreat into 
into this world we've already created in this the metaverse into into the virtual world and that would be that be the culmination of everything Baudrillard wrote about you know about simulations and simulacra and all that kind of stuff and to read it is to is to think oh yeah we could do that but it's a really to me and I think to most people that's kind of a really nauseating prospect there's something really wrong you know it, it, it actually draws your attention to actually yeah, the, the, all the physical and, and the perceptual stuff that we enjoy about the real world and it's challenging in ways to reject the thesis and to, and to embrace the real world in a different way I think you know in a non-postmodernism way in a way which doesn't sort of revel in in, a virtu- in virtuality or you know doesn't mind the idea that we're living in a matrix or a computer simulation I mean it, it, maybe it forces us to reconsider what it is that we like about being humans as we are rather than embracing this kind of digital transhumanism which is so popular amongst you know a, a lot of sci-fi writers well, well down with postmodernism. <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> thank you that's great fun